Good morning. It's nice to see you all again as we continue our study of Titus. I wanted to share a little family update. A lot of you have been praying for us, and we've sent out uh, even a, last week a, a newsletter asking people to pray that God would continue to guide our family. And um, there seems like there's a, a, a direction forward for the next few months for us. We were in Philadelphia a few weeks ago and got to interact with a team within our organization that's working with Muslims there. And uh, they have a lot of Bengalis in the neighborhood. And they said, hey, would you consider coming here for a few months? And we said, well, uh, yes, but we don't have a house. We don't have any furniture. Um, if, if there was something that could be provided for us, we'll, we'll consider that. And so they had some contacts and got in touch with a, a pretty renowned church in the area. I didn't know about this church. Maybe you've already 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly. So it's uh, where James Montgomery Boyce was a preacher many years ago. And uh, they have a mission house, and they said we can stay there. So we'll uh, next Sunday will be our last Sunday with you all here, which I'm really sad about. We've had a really great time with you guys, um, and, and being able to teach on Sundays has been a, a highlight for me. But um, anyways, next Sunday will be our last Sunday, and then we'll go down to Philly as we continue to wait out our, our saga to return to South Asia. So... Uh, thank you for praying and continue to pray for us. And we, yeah, we've just enjoyed our time here so much uh, at New Village. So I'd like to just pray and then we'll, we'll look at here our section today on Titus 2. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the um, instruction it gives us. And this morning as we look at the instruction that Paul gave to Titus, specifically to women, to older women, to younger women, and then slaves, Lord. Um, for some of us, this text might be a bit old-fashioned. It might feel like it breathes um, ancient times, and, and in some ways it does, but Lord, help us to be the kind of people that open your word and say, Lord, if this is the instruction you have for us, help us to understand it, help us to love it, and help us to know how to live it out in our lives today. And we, we thank you for that. Help me to communicate those teachings that you have in this text to us today, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I, uh, we talked last week about men, Paul's instruction to the men, to the older men in the church and to the younger men. And for me, that was relatively easy because I'm a guy. I can kind of sympathize with what guys struggle with or think about and feel Today we're talking about women and slaves, and you might think, how in the world is that connected? And I'm going to try and show you that there is a great connection at the end of Titus 2. We see that connection, and even this week I had to, I talked a lot with Amber about the text. I talked, uh, put something out on my Facebook news post to get some insight from other women, and I think I've, I've gotten some good words that I can hopefully bring before you today. Um, from my sisters in Christ that have been able to speak into this. But the, the context here is that Paul is saying that he has instruction for different groups in the church. We looked at men, today we're looking at women, and then slaves. And if you looked in Titus 2, you'll see at the end of every subsection there, there was a so that. And today's, for women specifically, is so that the word of God would not be maligned. So women were supposed to act in such a way that God's word, God's name, would not be spoken badly against. And then we look even when this, the instruction to slaves and the instruction is that so that in every way they would make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. 
And so our behavior, our character, our lives, our speech, all of that, who we are actually does matter and does, we could say, bring people into the kingdom of God or not bring people into the kingdom of God. We, by our actions, we can cause great harm to the church, as you might know from different Christians that you've experienced over the years who did not live a godly life. And so the word today here is to the women specifically. And let's look here in verse 3, chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. I'll read it, and then we'll take a look at this. So the instruction was to Titus to likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what's good. And then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, who in the world are these older women in the church? And remember, we talked last week or in the few weeks I've talked with you about life expectancy. Life expectancy was pretty short in in those times with most people not living beyond the age of 60. So I don't know, maybe half of the church here would be gone if you were in Crete back then. But older women were women that were older than 40. And in this text, it's any woman who's probably raised at least your young children. So now you've gotten to the point where the physical demands of your, your job is kind of is gone. Um, not fully gone, of course, but is gone. And just think that that time there was no heating, there was no electricity. So life was definitely laborious to be able to run a house and care for your kids. It was a significant amount of time. And we know that young moms especially oftentimes go through quite a series of years, a long time where life is just challenging because kids are running around and your demand, the demands on you is very difficult. And there's an instruction here that, hey, these older women have kind of gained a little bit, gained a crown, so to speak. You've raised kids. Your children that you gave birth to are still, their hearts are still beating, their lungs still have air in them. They're, they've survived. And so you have something to teach the younger women in your life. And we look at the, this, the, uh, the first command there that the women are supposed to be reverent. Now, we've seen the word reverent probably in the New Testament before, but this is the only time this word in Greek is used, and it carries this idea of, of a sacred place, and that women know how, these older women know how to live their life within that sacred place. They live their life in fear of God, and we know that that's continually throughout the Bible praise, that we are to fear the Lord. I love in Psalm 128.1, it says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience with him. And this isn't the kind of fear that you might feel if you were walking in Harlem at 2 a.m. No, it's the kind of fear that has a a holy um, limit in your lifestyle, that you say, I shouldn't live in such a way because there's a holy God who demands that I obey him. And that's the first instruction that Paul gives to Titus for these women to be reverent, that they're, they're not careless in their lives. These older women are people who you can tell they, they think right about the kingdom of God and they pursue that above just uh, the other things of, of life. Then there's two na- comments that are given that are in the negative, that a woman shouldn't be slanderous 
or shouldn't be addicted to much wine. Now, I'll look at these kind of individually, but obviously you could be both, be uh, drinking too much and slanderous, or you could be one or the other. So it's not necessarily that they are tied together. But the idea was in Greek and and Hellenistic cultures that an an older woman might uh, become a little bit relaxed in her habits, and she might have some emotional pain she's trying to cover up. And as a result, she's drinking too much. She's having a few too many glasses of wine. And we know, obviously, in our culture today that that's quite accepted, that it's okay even if you do that in your own home and you're not hurting anybody, you're not causing any DUIs. But that was not the instruction that was given to women within the church, that they were supposed to be people who were um, who were, or who were, uh, how do you say, drunk in the spirit, not enslaved to wine and alcohol. And I know that even in the pandemic times, we've seen this be a big struggle for people who are at home more, and you don't have as much interaction with others. But this is a clear instruction. It's never in the scripture said that you should not have any alcohol, but to not have so much that it changes and alters your mind. What does it look like to slander? I was this week doing some research on this, and I came across a woman's thesis on Titus 2, and she has this whole you know, 100-page paper on this, but I liked what she talked about with slandering. So I'll give you an example, and you might think, okay, I, I've definitely been guilty of that. So in her example, she says, a Christian woman calls up another woman in the church, and she starts venting, rehashing, how she's been treated by another person within the body. And her one-sided venues stir her one-sided, you know, words stir resentment and anger in the listener. And that listener, thinking that she's a compassionate woman, feeds that woman's anger by consoling her and encouraging her self-righteous assessment of the situation. Now the conflict involves another woman who will probably vent her frustrations to another woman. And this is commonplace within the church. Not that men do not do this, but that these kind of things sometimes can breed like a wildfire. Our frustrations that we sometimes use, um, uh, we, we try to cover up these sins, right? By saying, I just needed to get this off my chest. But if any in, in our words, if any of our words are meant to tear down another person, even in a subtle way, God says, don't do that. That's slander, and that causes further issues within the body. And remember, Paul is trying to protect this small, growing Christian community in Crete to say, you shouldn't be like the outsiders. You should be different from them because God has purchased you. He wants you to live that holy, pure life, to not be like other people. And if you go anywhere in the world today, any office, you'll see slander today, right? You'll see people back-talking Politicians do this all the time. We constantly are hearing these things. And Paul is saying to we need to be a different kind of body that doesn't tear each other down, that doesn't slander and talk in a w- such a way that we rip people down. But if women aren't to be bad slanderers or drunks, what are they to do? What should you women who are older than 40 be passionate about? And it's to teach what is good. And this is where I think we um, need to highlight the, and elevate women in the church to, be, to say, man, you, you need to do your job and you need to fulfill your responsibility of teaching other people in the church. And specifically, 
He's saying to teach other women in the church. He showed the importance earlier in chapter 1 about the elders and what they were supposed to do to help lead the body. And they were given this formal role of leadership. But women also had this very, very important role in teaching other women in the church. And that would be such a possible infectious role because you then taught children in the homes too. And the impact was tremendous that could have been given. Now, why would he highlight younger women? And specifically, he, he highlights women who are married, who have kids. Now, I think that this, this is important to consider that a lot of times the Bible gives us some instruction, and it doesn't mean that if you don't fall within that specific category, this isn't for you. So he highlights here that women who have kids and are married, this is, this is specific instruction for them, but there's also something for you to learn if you're not married or if your kids are out of the house too. So, but the fact is that I Googled you know, this week, how many percent of American women will get married and have kids? Well, what number do you think it is? Is it higher than 50%? Yeah, higher than 75? Yeah, it's 85% of women. So hence the general instruction is good enough for a lot of women out there and a lot of people out there. Um, and so hopefully we can all take away something from this, specifically the women. And when I asked women this last week, what is, what is something you wish that, um, that an older woman could have taught you or could teach you now? And a lot of the young women that, that responded to my post said, look, as a young mom, I oftentimes feel like I'm lonely and I'm drowning and I'm not able to uh, care for myself. And it's interesting that a lot of the older women who responded said that they wished they had an older, when they were younger, they wished they had an older woman who came alongside them to teach them things, to be with them, to sit in their house and talk to them. And oftentimes I think what you have is this group of people like older women and younger women, and, and we're not connecting here. And, and what's the, the main issue is usually the younger woman is afraid to admit a vulnerability and saying, hey, I could use some help. And the older woman might look at the younger woman on a Sunday morning and say, she looks pretty good. I don't know how much help she actually needs, and is afraid to take that risk to, to be with someone, to be with the younger woman in the body, or to come over to her house and encourage her. And so we need this almost body of people willing to, older women, take that risk for the younger women in the church. And the younger women in the church need to be willing to admit that they need some help and need some assistance emotionally and physically uh, to help be taught. And so the context here, given that this is Roman Empire, mothers would have been quite, uh, mothers were specifically responsible to teach their daughters things. And Jewish, in Jewish culture, we see that that was also a part of the culture. We see in uh, Deuteronomy 6 that God had instructed the parents of the house to teach God's commandments to them. When you're going, uh, when you're at home, when you're walking along the road, and when you lie down and get up, teaching was supposed to happen within the context and the ebb and flow of daily life. And older women were supposed to 
be willing to do this with younger women. It doesn't mean that older women should only teach in the church. They should be willing to go to the houses of younger women and enjoy time together and be able to share the word over a cup of coffee in the house while the kids are running around like crazy and fighting over toys. That's, that's where real life happens. And I think that's what Paul is hitting at here, that, that younger women should be taught and this is the best place to teach them oftentimes. Now, for this might, I'm not intending this to be what's called mansplaining. But for guys, I think we need help on understanding our wives and the women that are in our lives. Fifth, uh, about 10 years ago, when we first started off in South Asia, there was something that an older missionary uh, woman said to me that's really stuck with me. And she said that uh, a woman from the time she's about like 15, 16 years old to the time she's in her late 20s has gone through so many more changes than a man has. And oftentimes us men have been teenagers. We might then get married, have kids. But throughout that same period of time, usually in most cultures, we've still stayed working. We've stayed out of the house most of the time. Um, because usually men have earned more money, and we're not going to get into all that today, but typically that's been the case. But for a woman, she's oftentimes been maybe a 15, 16-year-old girl with very little responsibility, usually in, in most houses. Um, and other than the, the Lord doesn't want her to, to sin, she should be able to have quite a bit of freedom. But then if she chooses to get married, then she has another person that she's walking alongside with in life. And then if she has children, then she's literally trying to help people stay alive. And so we, these women have typically gone through a lot of different changes that men do not go through. And you women probably saying, yeah, that, that's common sense. But sometimes us guys really need that reminder that uh, our lives usually don't have as much drastic changes in that 10-year period of life that women's lives do. Hence the need for special encouragement to these younger women. And so I would encourage you, if you're a man too, to make sure that you, your wife who might be in that younger woman under 30, 30, under 40 category is really cared for and blessed and protected in this time that she's able to learn from older women. Well, what was it that Paul said these younger women should know? And that's what we look at here in the first section of, uh, let's see what verse that's in. In verse 4, the verse, uh, we see that the first instruction is that they should love their husbands and children. And that doesn't mean at all that women are supposed to be the only people to take care of the child, ch children in the house. That's not at all what it's saying. But it's saying that they definitely need to be people who care for the family, who watch over, who protect that those most important relationships in the home. They're not to be people who are seen outside as being able to do everything else, but their family is a mess. Just like the elders, remember, were supposed to be able to help maintain and manage their home to make sure that the children were not unruly, that the wife also is supposed to be someone who loves their husband, to love their children, that that especially is her, her main discipleship field that that is especially cared for. Not that she can't pursue other things, but that you have to make sure that this is a must. 
And um, one example we, we had in our, in our uh, lives about a year ago, uh, right before COVID hit, was uh, we had a, a family and uh, they said, f they're from uh, Kentucky, they said, hey, Michael and Amber, we'd love to come out and visit you in your home in South Asia. We'll, we'll fly, we'll uh, come out and visit, you know, take our vacation time. And they came out to our house. They spent a whole week with us. They end up getting stomach bugs at the end of the trip. But in the midst of that trip, that was some of the most, the best example I saw of a Titus II kind of relationship, specifically where the wife came alongside Amber and she watched her do homeschooling and she had previously homeschooled all five of her kids and she watched her and she gave tips to my wife on how to better teach and then we would sit down at night and husband and wife together we'd talk and they even gave us some admonishment that we could use for our parenting and it, it worked really well we were able to implement not that we're the perfect parents but it that was so good for us, that practical advice, that kind of like Titus II style discipleship in the home that this older woman specifically gave to my wife as a model to show how to love her children, how to love her husband. And we, we have a good relationship with that couple today. The other instruction was that these wives would be self-controlled and pure. Now, don't this is nothing new throughout Titus he gave that same instruction to the older men and then he gave that to the younger men which we looked at last week but in the midst of a crazy season of life for most young women there could be a tendency uh, not a tendency there could be a desire that pops up with maybe feeling less appreciated than you would like to think maybe what would it be like to have a different person in my life and in the woman I mentioned earlier in her thesis, she says that women, young women specifically, just need to guard themselves against any sort of imagination that someone better might be better than their current spouse. The reality is that someone is better than your current spouse in some way, but we're not to entertain that, that you're still supposed to be pure and not um, seek out any sort of relationships online or to stay away from overt romantic novels or TV series and movies, but we're supposed to be pure, women are supposed to be pure to still be self-controlled. The last set of instructions for the younger women needs some unpacking, so we'll, we'll look at this. It's to be busy at the house, to be kind, subject to your husband, so no one would malign the word of God. And Paul is saying that, look, the, the number one thing that's busy at home, I think, means that they're, they're, they're productive in what they seek to do, that they're not just idly wasting time um, in their life but the, and going about from thing to thing, but there's an idea of productivity. And Paul talks about this also in the latter part of this book, that he encourages them in 3.14, our people should devote themselves to doing what's good in order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. And that was a job of the younger women, the younger women in the church. Then if you looked at Proverbs 31, you, you might think, man, that woman that's praised, she's a crazy entrepreneurial businesswoman, right? And there's that elevation that Paul is definitely having for younger women in the church to, to not just be at home with your uh, family, but to try as much as you possibly can to be productive for the blessing of the body, to help others. 
it says that she's to submit to her husband. And nowhere in the scripture do we see that a wife, a woman is supposed to submit to a man other than her husband, but it's to her husband. There's a helpful order in the house to stabilize the, the home. And that's the same thing we've seen in the church, that there's an order in the church to hopefully give it um, um, you know, a good reputation in the community, that it's not chaotic, that there's a, leader, there's a leadership and there, we're trying to follow it. I liked what one woman, one of my wife's friends, she says about submission. She says, submission is a choice that I make every day to honor my husband and to support him and help him. I signed up for that when I married him. It's not suppression, and it's a gift, and it's something that we as wives get to do in order to lift up the ones that we love so much. I believe that if, uh, I believe the idea is that if marriage reflects the relationship between the church and Christ, we sacrifice and lay down our life like Christ did for us out of thanksgiving and honor. And when it's done well, that both are lifted up for God's glory. Another woman said that's my parents' age. She said that when her husband was out and the kids were young, she was the boss, right? She was in control of the house and, and set the rules. And then her husband would come home and uh, her natural inclination was to still be the boss and to then control her husband in the situation. But she said, I, over time, I learned that that wasn't helpful and my husband needed to be respected and shown uh, that honor. And she says, I had to give up that that um, control and, and he would make mistakes along the way, but I realized finally that me submitting was not to him ultimately, but to the Lord. And I love how she says this, that a marriage without submission is like a boat without a rudder, um, or it is like a boat with a broken rudder. The boat has no direction and is trying to go in too many directions at once. It will get nowhere and everyone will be frustrated. Personally, I was happier when I gave up control. And so submission, we, we are all called in various aspects to submit to people. And in the home, it says that the wife is called to submit her to her husband. But ultimately, this instruction is to submit to the Lord and what he is asking us to do and to trust that his, he will guide us, he will protect us, he will lead us through that. And if you looked at what I said earlier, this there's a reason why these specific instructions are given. And Paul says, so that no one will malign the word of God, that no one can hit against it and say, hey, look at those Christians. Their home is a mess. The wives are running around like crazy. The, you know, the husbands earlier, we saw what they're doing. And he's saying, no, look, this is what I'm instructing you to make sure that you have good, solid homes so other people don't look at you and say, my goodness, why would, why would I ever want to follow what they believe? Look at their house. It's crazy. It's a mess. Paul is encouraging us and the women specifically in this section to do that. Now, I would encourage you husbands and wives to unpack this together, to really work through this and figure out, here's what the scripture says Let's work through this together. And remember, this is you go through seasons and phases of life. And so when your kids are older, you're, you're having a different discussion as husband and wife what this looks like. When you have no kids, you're having a different discussion, you know, 
But um, it, but specifically in the time, I think um, for young moms, there's a, a serious need to make sure they are very encouraged and blessed because they are dealing with a lot of things in the house. And the ultimate desire here is that this so that God's word is not maligned. So there's a missional component that our actions and wives, your actions in the house affects how other people view God's word, how other people view him and his the testimony of the gospel. We're now going to transition and uh, you could, we could talk about this for a long time, but I, I do want to talk for about 10 or 15 minutes here in the end, the, the latter part of the sermon on this section on slaves. And that might be, uh, it seems very odd today, you know, in America we don't officially have slavery, although there's lots of things like my cousin, she's always talking about human trafficking, right? It's a form of slavery that is more underground but still occurs today. And so we're going to look at what, in the, what Paul has to say. And first I want to read the text, and then I want to spend some time unpacking this because this is a big issue that I would like to talk about talk a little bit about because at first glance it's like Paul hits you in the face and you're like what am I supposed to do with that and it needs some unpacking here so Paul says in verse 9 and 10 teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them not to talk back to them and not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, just a good practice when you're reading your Bible and you read something that, that maybe sounds like nails on a chalkboard, which maybe both of these passages do, uh, could sound like that. It's just to pause and say, are there words here? Are there terms here? Is the situation such that I can't quite understand it? And, and when, that's the, when you answer that yes, you need to really start to dive deeper on this. And such is the issue with slavery and mentioned in the Bible. And so I want to kind of do, the, do this. I want to talk about what was the context of slavery in going on then in the Roman Empire in the first century. And then I want to look a little bit about what it was like in the Old Testament and America and then try and piece all that together and say why I think what Paul is saying when he talks about slavery our idea of slavery is not the idea that Paul has of slavery. Um, and so what was going on in the Roman Empire at that time? So in the Roman Empire, remember, it was quite large. It would have been part of Europe today, North Africa, the Levant, so Israel, Lebanon, Ju um, and uh, Jordan. Okay, so huge part of the world. And for about 600 years, slavery was occurring in that part of the world. In the first century, Maybe one-third of all people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. That's a lot of people, one-third. Like if you looked in our room, one-third of you being slaves would be a huge amount of number, population, like percentage-wise. Now, the, the distinction at this time compared to American slavery was that, that slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race, it was based on your essentially your your poverty level, your socioeconomic level. So not based on if you were black, white, brown. Okay, it was based on how what your your um, 
you know, your your bank statement was, so to speak. If you didn't have money, you might be sold into, you might sell yourself into slavery or be sold into slavery. And there was, like even in American history, there was kidnapping that would take place. There was uh, slave markets that were there. And so why, why would, you might think, why would Paul not speak out against this um, more harshly in this context? And I, one commentator, John Stott, says, Probably the reason is that if if he did, these slaves would be wiped out. And not only that, it might also look like Paul is trying to cause this uprising in the Cretan culture in the Roman Empire. And so hence he's not speaking out. But Paul is going to do it in a bit of a subtle manner. Now, in the Old Testament, we do see slavery. But what we see more in among in that broad definition, we see a lot of what's called indentured servanthood. And what does that mean? That means that basically you get yourself in, somehow you, you are in a heap of trouble financially and your only way out is to become a slave and to sell yourself or your family for a certain period of time. And in Israelite, in the Mosaic law, if you worked six years, on the seventh year, you'd be set free. Or on the year of Jubilee, which is the 50th year. And then on the 50th year, you, your family, whatever ancestral plot, plot you were given before, you'd be given that back. And so slavery, or you might say indentured servanthood in the Bible, was given so that People who are so broke they couldn't do anything else would be able to still, hopefully, in theory, have protection within the land of Israel by a fellow Israelite and then be able to, sell, uh, to after six years, be free. And if you so wanted, you could stay, stay on with that master that you had and they would perform a, a little ceremony where they pierce your ear. And so, but slavery was, was in some ways, you could say, meant as a protective measure for those who were so poor that they had no other recourse. Now, it would be interesting, I, I've kind of thought about this, like, in America, we don't even think about that as a possibility because we, we have credit cards, right? But people are probably just as much in debt as they were in Israel, but now we're not seeing indentured servanthood in America, but you would have seen that had, had uh, there been no credit cards, I guess, um, or there been no credit cards now. But biblical rules on slavery forbid kidnapping. They forbid imprisoning a slave. They forbid torturing a slave and any physical abuse. That if it, there was physical abuse, there was a, a clear punishment and or freedom for that slave. They would give slaves time off. They would give slaves enough food, enough legal recourse even, to be able to uh, help solve their case, and then protection against sexual harassment or rape if you were a slave. If you want to look at this more, um, there's a really fascinating lecture by, um, by a man who's on the, the translation committee for the ESV. Uh, his name is um, Peter uh, Williams, I believe. And his, his, he basically says that if we use the most common definition that we have for slavery, the Bible nowhere supports that. And so it would be interesting. We don't have an answer to this, but if Paul was alive, you know, pre-Civil War, what would he have said about slavery? And I think the answer is just we don't know. He could have very vocally spoken out against it, uh, but the slavery he was living in at the time was very different. Just to highlight, even in our own history in America, we have a, a terrible 
history of this being in it, within the bounds of our country, that even the law, there was a South Carolina law of 1740, which said that if a slave spoke up against uh, their, their master or wouldn't allow themselves to be examined or they struck their master in any way, they could be killed. And that was all they had to do was say one, one bad thing about their master, and that was it. And so we have a, a horrendous history of that here in America where we do see where there was kidnapping, slaving, total demeaning of people, not viewing them in the image of God. Now, if that's the case, why does Paul not, um, if slavery is such a horrible thing, why does it appear that Paul is soft on it? Well, I think there's a few reasons, and um, I would just like to say that if you looked at these issues within the New Testament, Paul does address these things in the book of Ephesians and Colossians. He basically shows that a slave and his, ma- his or her master is actually equal because they have a, a master above them. And that kind of language, especially in such a culture where you have high, you know, extreme differences in social status, that Paul was saying that, look, there, you as a master have no reason to think you're better than your slave, and you as a slave have no reason to think you're less than your master. You're all equal in Christ, and that's talked about, too, in Galatians The most direct attack on slavery is in the book of Philemon, which you can look at on your own time later, but where Paul encourages Philemon, a slave owner, to free his slave, to forgive the debt of this slave Onesimus because he is a believer in Christ. And even the the usage of the brother-sister language throughout the New Testament is talking about there's no one better in this room, there's no one less uh, there's no one lower than me there's no one higher than me because Christ has made us all equal and so that's kind of the heartbeat of what I've studied a little about there's a lot to research more on this subject but God is basically I think Paul throughout the New Testament is creating this new ethic and new uh, equality under the surface that he's hoping will arise where people now see each other as um, one in Christ So if we looked back here in this passage, Paul is not coming at this directly to cause a revolution in the area, but he's asking that slaves would submit to their masters in everything. Now, would that be easy? Of course not. And that's the same, the same word to submit for a slave to the master was what was used earlier for a wife to her husband. This would not be something easy, but this was something that Paul was instructing the slave to do. To not steal, to not like pilfer, to not take when your master's not looking, but to be fully trustworthy, to be fully and completely able to where the master could say, I, I have no doubt that my that this slave who's working for me loves me and will not do anything wrong to me. And so Paul was encouraging this, and the bigger aim was that so that the slaves would make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, could you imagine if you had a household and there was a slave in your house and that slave said, well, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, uh, but yet that person was still stealing from you and talking back and constant challenge to you. How would you feel in that moment? You'd probably feel, well, well, your religion doesn't obviously do anything good for you. Your faith doesn't make you a better person, right? And you'd want to only 
theoretically spit on that religion. But through this, hopefully, the, the component was that their behavior was adorning the gospel, it says, that it was making the gospel beautiful, To de- it was decorating the gospel. And is that something that we can do today? I would say absolutely. And that's how most people come to Christ, is through a relationship with a Christian. They've watched that person walk through life, and they've seen that there's something different about them. You know, 80% of any of people who come to Christ come through a relationship with another Christian. That's a lot. That's a huge percent. And I'm, I'm hoping that 80% of those people that or the people that came to faith were because that Christian had adorned the gospel and made it look beautiful. And the question we all need to ask ourselves is, is my is what I'm how I'm living my life? Is it adorning? The gospel, or is it discrediting it? Is it making it look better or making it look worse? Now, in the beginning of the message, I talked about I was going to teach on women, I'm going to teach on slaves. How in the world do they are they connected? And they're connected because the the instruction might be different for both groups of people, but they're connected through verses eleven to fourteen. That the gospel, when it comes into your life and my life, that it's meant that we change, that our lives are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we don't pursue what the world pursues, but now we have a new pursuit that gives honor and glory to God. That's what verse 11 says here, that for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us, I love that, what teaches us? The grace of God teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So it's, it's, like, it's not like you're saying, oh, I'm, being a Christian, I'm not supposed to do this, not supposed to do that. No, it's not that at all. It's God's grace, him giving you a new life, something you don't deserve, is what is teaching you. You're, you just kind of want to uh, uh, crumble in, in humility and be like, hey, I need to live my life differently. I'm not going to be an ungodly person doing what I used to do, doing what just feels right to me. There's a, a reason why, and it's that hope that Pastor Josh spoke about. Josh, is it? I think it's Josh. He spoke a few weeks ago. That hope. Right. And Paul says in the New Testament, if we don't have that hope in a resurrected Christ, then everything we're doing here is just a waste of time. Right. And we're just not we're not using our time well. But because Jesus is coming back, because he in verse 14, he redeems us from all of our sin and he purifies us. That's the idea that he's taking you and I. He's cleansing us. He's refining us. He's making us into something that you and I could never make ourselves into. And because of that, we act in a different way. And he'll talk about this in chapter 3, that now actually we're zealous to do good things. We want to do things that are helping others and, and glorifying him those so that passages. We want to act like this so that God's word is not maligned. We want to act like this so that the gospel is more attractive. And we all need help in that, right? There's no way that in my own flesh I can do that or you can do that. And that's what Paul is calling these Cretans to then. And he's what is what he's, I think, calling us to today to live 
like people who are different. And so I want to just close with some questions to you to think about and, and maybe pray through this next week. And hopefully again in your bulletin you received a half-page paper that you can, can work through. But the question that I want to ask is, is your life, is it adorning or is it discrediting the gospel? And I just spend some time with that question, just in asking God to help you. If you are doing certain things in your life, if you're slandering, if you're drinking too much, if you're thinking about um, people other than the person that God has brought you with to be married to, that you would really seek to repent of those sins and say, God, I, I need your help. I want to live different. I want to adorn my adorn the gospel and not discredit this. And to the ladies here in the room, I just want to say that the body so clearly needs you. It needs you to teach us men. It needs you to teach us uh, to teach the younger women in the church. We need your insights and your care, your your decorating skills. Oftentimes us men are terrible at that. We need your help in that way. But we need you to teach the other women and the children in this church so that we as a body are fit together and grow up in in him and while slavery is not no is officially abolished in america um, we can pray for the continuing abolishment of things like human trafficking we can ask god to to create equality in our society, even where racial reconciliation needs to happen. We can ask God to continue to make things better, to, to reflect the kind of kingdom that he has in this earth and desires for that to be. So let me close our time in prayer uh, right now with this kind of a, a desire to adorn the gospel. Heavenly Father, I... I I admit, Lord, it's so hard to adorn the gospel in our own strength. We want to do things that please us. And today, as I um, shared from the teaching that specifically is to younger women and then to slaves here, but applicable for all of us, Lord, is that you would give us a heart that doesn't want to just do what we want to do. But ultimately, Lord, we want to please you, um, even when we might not understand the why, the reason why you want us to do certain things, that we would still be willing to do that, to trust in you, to trust that you are honored through that, Lord Jesus. Help us to adorn the gospel this week. Amen.